I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome back to the podcast as always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton back again to talk about the week that was in the world of uh, Formula One. And Mark, boy, just like, uh, I, I guess Formula One is the microcosm of the global macrocosm in as much as there's been a lot going on just everywhere, just generally. And that has been exactly the same situation in Formula One since we did the show uh, roughly a week ago. It's a... Uh, you know, and, and I've been so busy just with everything else, with family, with work, and just trying to navigate through the maze of life that it kind of really snuck up and caught me. Like when I started going through the news the last couple of days, I'm like, whoa, wait, what? It's just like, I, I've really <laughs> missed something over the past several days. I got your, your agenda a couple of minutes ago before we started this podcast. And I have to say, I had a bit of a heart attack. It's a very ambitious agenda to work through today. And I would never have expected there would be so much to talk about in the middle of yeah. January. Um, it's, it's a little bit alarming, but there's, there's obviously some really, really good stuff here. And I think we were maybe a little bit ahead of the curve last week when we were talking about some of our subjects, especially around the calendar. I think, yeah. I think we were kind of leading into some things that really kind of, um, blew up this week in terms of newsworthiness. So yeah, lots to, uh, lots to get into. I had a, I've, not that people particularly care about my personal life, but <laughs> I had a very, we had very good Persian takeout tonight. Um, so I am, uh, amped up and, and ready to go here. Well, we're going to have to talk off air because, uh, you know, anytime I hear like something like that, that, you know, that's an insider's tip and I just need to, I, I need more detail. <laughs> so we're, we're going to talk after the show, my friend. But yeah, you know, it is, it's really interesting about some of the things we were talking about. One thing that, uh, that, that I've, you know, I feel like there's this cloud of shame hanging over me that we really missed the bit, one of like the big stories that was kind of like right in there between the lines last week when we, we were sitting there in the, I, I guess MotoGP corner is going to be a thing. <laughs> Anyways, we, we were talking about how, you know, that the, the sort of tie into Alpine and all these appointments that they've been ma making. And the, the writing was on the wall that uh, Abitabul, like, where was he going to end up? I mean, we'll, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later in the show, but I, I feel like we, we completely glanced over it and neither of us picked up on it. And uh, lo and behold, that's uh, one of the stories this week that uh, Surreal Abitabul, who's been uh, team principal at uh, Renault for the past uh, couple of years, has left the team effective uh, immediately. Yeah. That was yeah. pretty totally. To be totally honest, I think that was pretty incompetent of both of us. <laughs> that we were we were discussing in strategic detail the acquisition of their new CEO from a from a very successful MotoGP team, and at no point did we make any reference or make any consideration to what the impact could have been or already was to their longstanding team principal. So yeah, shame on us for missing that one. Well, you know, it, it, we we haven't even got to preseason testing yet, so uh, th this will be our one. Uh, th this will be our gimme. So we're 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 on. Uh, 
we, we've been put on notice, Mark. We're going to have to be a lot sharper on these things uh, moving forward. But uh, big story number one is that uh, Ferrari driver Charles Leclerc has tested positive uh, for, for COVID, uh, following up uh, not, not even a week after uh, McLaren driver Lando Norris announced that uh, that he did tested positive after losing smell and taste and experiencing mild uh, symptoms uh, when he was uh, heading out for a short holiday in, uh, in Abu Dhabi before he was uh, going to do what he needed to do there. Um, Charles uh, reporting similar. Uh, he wrote uh, in a release, uh, quote, hello guys, I hope you're all staying safe. I want to let you know that I have tested positive for COVID-19. I am regularly checked according to my team's protocols. Unfortunately, I learned I have been in contact with a positive case and immediately went into self-isolation, notifying anyone I had contact with. A subsequent test I took has come back positive. I am feeling okay and have mild symptoms. I will remain in isolation in my home in Monaco in compliance with the regulations set forth by the local health authorities. Stay safe and take care. So he's what now the eighth driver, I believe that, uh, no, I can't, I guess it's not eighth. I think that's fifth. So we, fifth. we did the math last week, right? Yeah, so it yeah. was, well, it's it was fifth, Sergio, yeah. Lance, um, Lewis, Lewis, Lando, and now and Leclerc. Leclerc. But the, so. even, even even that is pretty remarkable, right? You talk about a 20-driver field and a quarter of your field has tested positive for COVID-19. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, mo- I can't even say that most of that wasn't during the season because three of those cases were during the season as a whole, but that that's pretty alarming. And, you know, my, my concern, and this is just purely speculation, is we know that uh, that Charles is a younger driver. Um, he obviously enjoys... Um, his social life. And I think there was some criticism early criticism of him early in the season last year, when between the two races in Austria, he'd left the F1 bubble and flown home to Monaco to spend time with friends and family. And he was greatly criticized, but I just, I just got to think that the teams themselves would have mandated that these drivers would have been in protective bubbles for the off season. Like think guys, I know it's painful. We're paying you tens of, especially in Charles Leclerc's case, we're paying you tens of millions of dollars a year to drive our car. Please, please just stay in, in your home. And again, we don't have any of the specific details here. He seemed to be humble enough. You know what? The team's protocols caught this early. Um, it's all good news, but it, is a little bit alarming that a quarter of the drivers have now tested positive in the last year. Yeah, it certainly is interesting uh, due to the fact that uh, we we were just talking about it a couple of weeks ago that I think it was uh, Braun, Ross Braun, the, uh, what is he, the motorsport director of, or director general of motorsport or whatever his fancy (laughs) title is. I I trip over it every time I mention it. So do I, so do I. But, uh, you know, he he released some of the numbers and all the tens of thousands of COVID uh, tests that they did over the course of the 2020 World Championship, what was it, like 75 78 less than 80 cases came back as positive and the vast majority were just unfortunately uh, due to or uh, related to the ancillary personnel and people that work at the facilities and the tracks and stuff like that so the people actually in the teams that actually tested positive was actually quite small but then you know when you kind of divide it up into the different areas of, uh, of people that have uh, contracted and gotten covid inside the formula one sphere you know a quarter of the grid that's actually quite uh, astonishing so i haven't heard anything Thing about Lando, I'm just assuming no news is good news, and the same with uh, with, with Charles. And uh, but you know neither has uh, Lance really said anything, or Lewis, or or, or Checo. I mean they all kind of uh, reported mild symptoms and whatnot. So hopefully with these two, it's uh, the, the the case. But uh, as it seems to be reported most of the time, that when it comes to you know your younger person in, in healthy and good shape, that uh, it tends to be. 
you know, something that uh, you recover from and the lingering after effects don't, uh, don't seem to be as, uh, as, as severe as it has been for, for other people. But definitely that was a, a bit of a shocker when I saw that, uh, this week. And, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind after I was like, Oh my God, uh, you know, Charles has got COVID now. It's just like, who's going to be next? So I guess it's just going to be a fact of life that we're going to have to, to, to deal with as, um, <laughs> we go through this, uh, navigate this whole, uh, COVID thing over the weeks and months and uh, hopefully not um, years ahead. So, Mark, you, you you mentioned it right off the start, how we were just uh, discussing last week, you know, the, this ambitious 23 race uh, calendar that Formula One is uh, trying to push forward this year. As, you know, we're still in January. We're still, well, you know, quite a ways away from the, you know, the, 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 the uh, what the... What is a way the wishful start to the season that they'd project or aim for in the middle of uh, of March? You know that's been now uh, confirmed that uh, Australia will not take place in the traditional chi- time slot in the middle of March. It's going to be moved uh, to December. China's pushing for something too that they want to be rescheduled to the end of the year. Imola's been added to to, to the calendar, and uh, you know I, again, just like I was saying, we're I guess we're going to have to deal with stories of people within the Formula One bubble testing positive with COVID. So over the weeks and months ahead that uh, until things uh, settle down that um, that that this is just going to be a fact of life and that uh, despite they wanted to to push forward this very ambitious schedule that uh, it it really isn't too much of a surprise and and hopefully that um, you know we don't lose too many races i mean rescheduling's one thing but i hope too many don't disappear altogether Right. And I feel like we were in a pretty good place last week when we started talking and, and I think in part really speculating about what the calendar could look like this year. And the consequence, at least the early consequence was that Liberty was pretty confident. I think when the calendar was posted originally that we were going to be able to start the season in mid March in Australia. I, I think anyone that's close to the ground in that country recognized that that was never going to be a reality. So Australia officially has been displaced from its typical opening March time slot. I think at this point, and again, there'll probably be some movement in the calendar. We can probably expect to see it slotted between Brazil and Saudi Arabia in a very unusual November time slot. Um, But the good news is, and you know, I'll let you kind of break the news on this one um, because I'm sure most of our listeners haven't heard this, but we are going to be going back to a track in the middle of April that I think both you and I really enjoyed last year, right? Yeah, well, Imola is a great one. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the race there. I mean, it was, it was quite eventful and it was really kind of cool. Like, uh, you know, most people know that I'm a cyclist and, uh, you know, I really enjoy watching, uh, you know, especially like the, the the Grand Tours and a lot of the classics and things like that. And it was really cool to kind of get a preview because they had the World Championships at uh, Imola and, uh, you know, for for the road races, they used part of the circuits. They, they were going uh, back to front, but still it was kind of a cool little uh, preview and tie-in. But I am glad to see that that, uh, that Imola will be back for for the 2021 uh, season. So the way that it's uh, shaking down right now, so, so obviously Australia is out. The uh, start of the season has been shifted uh, two weeks till uh, 28th of March for Bahrain. Then uh, we get a couple of weeks in between. Then we're back to Imola. The 2nd of May, that's still an open uh, time slot. And then after that, we have Spain, Monaco, Azerbaijan, Canada, France, Austria, British uh, Grand Prix, 18th of July. And then first half of the season, should it uh, you know complete the way that it's uh, supposed to, we'll finish up at uh, in, in Hungary at the, on the, the first weekend of August. 
August uh, and then we're into the, the the summer break because then you know we got three and a half weeks off and then we go to spa for the uh, for for the 29th so like you mentioned uh, Australia is now slotted in for the 21st of November and it seems kind of weird uh, for for us to see it at that time of year but I mean from a weather point of view I mean in the southern hemisphere the data definitely works and uh, certainly I'm glad to see that it's uh, sticking around and you know looking at this uh, new re-released uh, calendar that uh, Formula One uh, released this week I really 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 are crossing both fingers all my fingers all my toes that uh, that this stays the way that it is but you know I've still gone back and thought about it uh, you know over the weeks uh, since the end of uh, last season that Sure, it was disappointing and understandable that we we lost uh, so many races, but ultimately, by the time we we got racing, started racing at Austria in the beginning of July, we went through the entire season, wrapped up at Abu Dhabi in the beginning of December. It still felt like a really healthy season. I don't feel like it, it really lacked at all. I mean, we had a lot of double and triple header, uh, you know, portions of the calendars, which obviously is exhausting for the people in, in Formula One, for the teams and the drivers and everything. But, um, you know, certainly if we were to lose a couple of races off here again, and like I say, hopefully that doesn't happen still, I, I think anywhere if we get uh, 17, 18 races, hopefully that is the, you know, the bare minimum and it doesn't really sound as though that we're going to lose too many, but. Um, you know, it, it worked. And anything yeah. that we get more this year, I think is just uh, the, the cherry on the top of the cake. Yeah, the good news, of course, for uh, the, the race organizers in Saudi or Saudi Arabia um, in, in Australia is, is, of course, by by putting that race at the back half of the schedule at the back half of the calendar and into November, there's every reason to think that Again, knock on wood, everything goes well, that the vast majority, if not the entire population of Australia should be vaccinated by that point, and you should be able to sell all available tickets. And and I'm sure there's going to be some health authority guidance on, on distancing and safety protocols that we haven't seen in the past. But the good news is for the race organizers, um, they're actually going to be able to recover some of the costs associated with hosting this. And and I, I think one of the things, and you know, I, w- I was having uh, some sidebar conversations during the week with uh, with somebody that's a little bit closer to the sport, but kind of works on the financial side. And, and he was saying that one of the underreported stories through all of this is what COVID potentially is doing to the individual race organizers that host mm. some of these races. And as much as we talk about the impact of Formula One and the teams and Liberty and the sponsors, the individual organizations that host these races are getting absolutely battered. And the tracks that host these races often rely on the revenues associated with those events to fund the maintenance of the infrastructure. So hopefully, again, by the back half of this calendar, things will return to normal. We'll be able to start selling some tickets and things like that. I'm still very skeptical about Canada and and Monaco in the front half of the schedule and really Mm -hmm. Azerbaijan. Um, I, I think that those, given that they're really located within metro limits i think are going to be problematic shaky, yeah. um, but i think the other the other positive thing though is obviously we're going to start bahrain which makes total sense um i think we're going to speak to preseason testing in a minute imola is going to be awesome i can't wait to see that whether there's fans there or not it's just a beautiful track to see and yeah. then i think the other open slot which was it was kind of left in place i think by formula one because i think they understood there needed to be some flexibility in the calendar this year is after vietnam dropped off they didn't backfill it but i think there's every reason to believe that portamao portugal could still fill that slot and i think you and i did the math last week that even geographically it just makes sense to have a portugal race immediately preceding a spanish grand prix simply because of geography but i think the calendar will continue to move but to kind of mirror echo your point as well i i at no point did I think that anything 
about last year was anything less than a, a championship. To me, no, it was 17 no. races. Yeah. It was a full-on championship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, some of the things that they were talking about last spring before they got to the point where it was finalized that we knew that we were going to have uh, X number of races to start the season and there, there are going to be more races to added to sort of uh, fatten up the, uh, the, the the end portion of the calendar. They were saying that they needed a minimum, um, uh, what was it, uh, of eight races to uh, just in the in the laws or the rules to actually have or constitute a world championship. Now, that would have seemed pretty thin, you know, in, in terms of races, but I think at one point when it was looking so dire and so grim, I think many people said, okay, for that, what it takes to, to get the championship done without having to wash out an entire season, so be it. I mean, the, the fact that they got 17 races in was absolutely, uh, you know, phenomenal work. But I was just looking at the, the, the this re- uh, revised calendar, Mark, and, and certainly if um, things stay the same right now, I mean, obviously, you know, you've got that uh, that that really far off race in the Middle East in Bahrain to start the, the, the season on 20 March. Then you have Imola. Second May, you have would have uh, potentially Portimao. Then you have Spain, Monaco, Azerbaijan uh, at the beginning of June. So certainly, you know, you get some hopping around within Europe and towards the, the fringes of Europe before popping over to Canada for the the, the one-off race in the European season uh, before you go back to, to, to Paul Ricard at the uh, the end of June. So certainly, it, it's, it's going to be fluid at the moment. And I think we just have to sit back and be patient and see where the calendar develops. Uh, from here. Anyway, so it's time to take a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment because uh, we're going to talk about what we all want to talk about in Formula One, and that's lawsuits. That's what we're all here (laughs) for, right? No, maybe not. Anyways, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Welcome to everybody listening in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, those of you watching on YouTube, I appreciate you all spending some time with us uh, this week uh, again. And Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton, running down the latest news in Formula One. And as I just hinted to before the break, so we're having a little bit of drama in uh, Brazil. So a judge has actually suspended the the, the contract between the promoter of the Brazilian Grand Prix or what they're calling the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. 
Grand Prix, which is at Interlagos. I mean, same venue, same place. There's been uh, for uh, for a long time. So the judges actually intervened and suspended the, the the contract. And this is basically regarding the use of public funds to secure the race, and then transparency and all these uh, sorts of things. And uh, well, I mean, rightly so. I mean, if uh, there, there's been some uh, issue and it's uh, you know not completely above board, then you know the public has a right to, to know how you know public funds are being spent on these things. So it's uh, it's kind of hot on the tails of the news that came out a month ago when uh, F1 CEO Chase Carey announced that they just uh, signed a new five year deal with uh, with uh, Interlagos uh, to to keep the Brazilian Grand Prix uh, there for the next uh, several years. So interesting uh, that it uh, should uh, <laughs> should turn out this way. So you know, like we were talking about the you know before the break, obviously there's there's a lot in flux. But uh, you know, honestly, when this news came out this week, I've been expecting to hear about races being canceled or rescheduled because of COVID and all the logistical problems and, you know, public health uh, health measures that are in play that are going to be, uh, you know, at the, at the forefront of everybody's mind. So <laughs> to see this, you know, yeah. Sao Paulo being canceled or not canceled, but uh, suspended uh, the, this whole thing. Well, I mean, it's not suspended, but uh, it's uh, on a little bit of um, uneven ground at the moment. So, you know, we'll wait and see how it uh, plays out, but uh, not one I was expecting to see, my friend. No, and Brazil's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a, a mystery and a challenge for Formula One for a number of years. And you know, to backtrack a little bit, uh, Interlagos and the previous race organizers had had a really sweet deal with Bernie and F1. Um, for all intents and purposes, they were basically paying zero in terms of race hosting fees. That was something that Liberty was eager to get away from, and Interlagos race organizers didn't have the appetite to shift away from it. And Formula One and Chase Carey and Liberty started working very closely with a separate group in Rio because the plan was to build an entirely new track in Rio and they were to pay Formula One a very, very, very healthy hosting fee. Um, that fell apart for a whole host of reasons, corruption, um, challenges from environmental groups because they were going to build the track on an environmentally sensitive area. It, it was a mess. So ultimately, Formula One went back to Interlagos. They partnered with a new race organizer who incidentally is actually backed by the Abu Dhabi government. Um, as part of the agreement, the city of Sao Paulo was willing to contribute, I think, about $4 million US towards the cause. And now the plan was all of that money is supposed to go into kind of track upgrades. But I think we've seen this, we've seen the shift in Europe, at least that GPs are being named more after the regions and the cities that host them as opposed to the country. And I think there's also some sour feelings in Sao Paulo and at Interlagos about the fact that Rio was so close to ripping, ripping this event away from them on a permanent basis. So yeah, to your point, the judges suspended the contract between Liberty and Formula One, citing a lack of transparency with basically what are effectively public funds that the city itself was going to contribute to the event. So we'll see, we'll ultimately see how this turns out. I, I'm sure for the sake of $4 million, something's going to get worked out, but it's also good to see in a country that has been so criticized and, and rightly so for the use of public funds, whether it was the World Cup or the Summer Olympics, that there's some accountability kind of a, at a legal level. But I, I don't I don't think there's going to be anything consequential in terms of um, risk to the race happening. Yeah, it'll be interesting to follow. But, uh, you know, the, the whole issue of transparency and the use of public funds really kind of reminded me a lot of the discussion about around the Mexican Grand Prix. This is actually pre-COVID, oh, yeah. you know, for the same thing that there, there was a real, I, I don't want to say like massive pushback, but there was uh, definitely, uh, you know, uh, you know, voices, uh, you know, being uh, made within the public about uh, the, the 
the use of public funds uh, to to try and retain and keep the the, the Mexican Grand Prix at uh, what is it Autodromo uh, Hermanos Rodriguez. And, and apologies for my very very bad uh, Spanish pronunciation, but uh, you know so be it. But you know it's just also interesting what you're saying about like, how you're seeing a lot of these uh, races now being rebranded to the specific um, you know region uh, rather than the country as a whole. And I wonder if this might be a bit of a, a phenomenon that we might see in this COVID and, and, and hopefully soon to be post-COVID landscape when you have countries that obviously that are tourist destinations and having a Formula One Grand Prix there is a, a very attractive thing to get people in there. I just wonder if we're going to see this boil down to a smaller, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, area of focus where, you know, to, to try and draw people into a specific region of the country to, 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 to get those tourist bucks that you're going to see this like the Tuscan Grand Prix and, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, Sao Paulo Grand Prix and things like that. So who knows, we might see the Texan Grand Prix <laughs> for, for the, uh, you know, the Circuit of the Americas or whatever it, uh, it might be. So that, that'll be an interesting kind of thing because, I mean, obviously everywhere that depends on tourism, especially where we live, is, uh, you know, a big tourist industry, especially in the summer and the winter as well uh, for winter sports and skiing that, uh, you know, these, these industries just worldwide have been hammered brutally uh, because of uh, COVID and, uh, you know, all the effects that it's had on on travel. So, Mark, where are we now in our very ambitious? So, like you said, uh, the, the the 23 race calendar was ambitious. We've, we've bitten off an ambitious, uh, you know, chunk of stories to discuss. So, moving ahead. Uh, so, uh, Formula One, this is just one we just need to touch on briefly. Uh, so, the FIA and the teams have uh, agreed to run a single preseason test at Bahrain that's going to run from March 12th to 14th. So, you know, we're, we're going to have uh, something uh, there. So, the, the, the test was originally going to be held in uh, Barcelona a couple of weeks uh, before that. Um, so, as soon as, uh, you know, it, it looked like uh, Australia was going to be blown off and pushed to a uh, later date in the season, uh, Bahrain was obviously going to be second on the calendar to uh, begin with. And uh, all the teams uh, just agreed, which, you know, the, the, in this COVID world, it finds, uh, you know, I still find it fascinating that uh, all the Formula One teams seem to be able to agree better on things now than they ever have in the decades and years gone past. But anyways, uh, they decided that uh, it would be actually <laughs> make a lot more sense to have the, the, the preseason testing in Bahrain and stay there for a couple of weeks for testing on the Grand Prix. So there you go. And, you know, being there, you know, you're going to be guaranteed uh, good, nice, uh, hot, sunny weather. So that uh, so that's that. Now let's uh, let's move along. So now this is an interesting one, and there there has been some suggestion that the 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 regulations that were going to come in for this year that have already been pushed back once. You know, there there there's some talk that uh, perhaps they're going to be pushed back and delayed beyond uh, 2022. But they've actually, Formula One has said this week that they're still fully 100% committed to introduce all the regulations, everything that they've tabled uh, to, to, to put into effect for next year. That, uh, that that's still going to go ahead and it's not going to be delayed uh, for an additional year to 2023. And uh, well, you know, it's, it, it really is, uh, you know, uh, fascinating. There was a, a, a state or sorry, pardon me, a, a statement that was uh, released by the FIA and Formula One that said uh, any suggestion that the 2022 regulations will be delayed is wrong and has not been discussed. The new regulations are designed to improve competition on the track and give our fans closer racing <clears throat> 
This combined with the new financial regulations will improve Formula One and create a healthier and stronger business model for the whole sport, end quote. So there you go. I mean, certainly the the, the rules and the regs uh, surrounding the cars are supposed to, uh, you know, improve the racing on the track, which, you know, of course, remains to be seen. I mean, computer models and, and, and theoretical you know, gains and, uh, you know, performances are one thing, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, I'm, I'm not being skeptical. I just, uh, well, I guess I am being skeptical to a, to a certain uh, degree. But what I do agree about in that, in that, in that statement is I think the crucial point is, especially in the world that we're living right now, are the new financial, uh, regs and everything they put into place with the cost caps and all these things, because they got to, got to get that, uh, under control or else it, you know, some teams are going to be hurting. I mean, several of them are already are. I'll make this quick. I, I think there's two things at play here. One, it's the logistics of pivoting this late. Like we we have to appreciate that these car, these companies, these manufacturers, these these teams are a significant way down the journey of developing that 2022 car to pause that, to pivot, and then start planning a 2022 car based on the 2021 car that's based on the 2020 car would be incredibly complex. And the other piece here too is, and we we always have to remember that Liberty is a publicly traded company and their commitment to their shareholders is that they're going to deploy, to your point, this new financial model really starting this year, but accelerating next year. It's it would be an incredibly difficult sell for Liberty to go back to their shareholders and say, hey, we, we need to pause this again. We have certain commitments and we've shared certain financial models of what the sport's going to look like um, with this new chassis and this new car and this new subset of rules. We're going to pause it another year. I just, I don't think they could go back to their shareholders. I think they would get crushed on on the streets. Um, my, my sense is the, car, the, the teams are far too far down the journey of developing that car. Yeah. Um, and I also just don't think that they could go to their shareholders and and basically explain that, hey, we're pushing off our revised economic model by another year. I just don't think that happens. Yeah, I totally agree. Like like you say, they're far too far down that uh, that road at the moment to, to to delay any of these things. And and like you say, it makes no sense for the fact that they've already, like even before COVID happened, like it was going to be a rush and it was going to be tight to get these cars yeah. designed and developed and built for 2021. So, I mean, they, they did get that extra breathing room and that extra time to develop these cars properly for 2022. And uh, just to, 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 set any of those back and delay it by a year be it uh, you know the, the the regs for the cars or the uh, you know the the financial side of it just potentially opens up just uh, a, a can of worms and, and a mess that they don't need i mean the thing that they need right now is that they need uh, a stable foundation underneath them the teams need to, a stable environment to to, to work in and uh, you know they really pushed uh, hard for the for for the cost cap uh, and 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 again it just blows my mind that they they agreed to that they agreed to the the, the new concord agreement when when typically these things dragged out uh, over well I mean it's probably like a you know Game of Thrones uh, Bernie Ecclestone style <laughs> when he was running the show in in Formula One so I, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, politics involved but um, you know it, it really blew my mind. That uh, th- this past year, all these complex things that uh, that always seemed that just even one of them in in any given year would be such a massive deal to you know for for all the teams to agree and and come to some sort of consensus about it was one after another after another, and and, and certainly when it came to the cost cap, it really just came down to the you know, like the, the the numbers. Ferrari wanted a, a higher cost cap and kind of scaling it down, whereas you had uh, teams like McLaren that really wanted to to shrink that number as much as possible as 
as soon as possible. And uh, even after that, there there was that debate. Uh, Ferrari, you know, eventually fell into the line, which is uh, another mind blowing <laughs> event, and you know, for for me, anyways. All right. Well, let's see. Where where are we now? Well, we're just okay. Well, let's uh, let, let's stick with the uh, uh, 2022. And uh, Mercedes says that they are facing what they're calling a formidable challenge ahead of the changes uh, coming into to effect uh, for for next year. Uh, you know, and, and this seems hard to believe of a, a team that's won seven consecutive uh, championships in, in both the, uh, the the drivers and constructors uh, side, and it really is. Uh, it is interesting to hear that because uh, Total Wolf uh, team principal says, you know, he's calling it's going to be what he calls, uh, you know, interesting year. You know, the way that they have to structure themselves uh, much differently that they've had to to do before. And this is exactly one of your points uh, from uh, several weeks ago. Is just uh, because uh, precisely because of the, the 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 cost cap now. You know, they're they're not going to be able to employ all these different people. They're not going to be able to to spend like they have uh, before. I mean, make no doubt about it. I mean, uh, the, the the you know the the best of the brightest. Uh, you know, people are still going to end up uh, at, at the top. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that uh, at some of these uh, smaller teams that the people there aren't uh, the, the same. But I mean, you know, teams like even if they all have the same budgets, you just know because of the prestige and, you know, everything that comes along with a, with a team like Mercedes or Ferrari, you know, that there's just that extra attraction for, for people wanting to, 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 to go there. But you know, it, it is interesting the way that, uh, you know, Toto says that uh, they're facing this, uh, you know, formidable challenge, what he calls the slightly tweaked 2021 regulations and the big earthquake of regulatory change of 2022. I think he's uh, brilliantly summed it up in just one sentence. I really do love the humility that this team this team uh, always demonstrates, you know, whether it's 2014 or 15 or 16, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you never pick up on any sense of arrogance from anyone within that organization. They're, they're very humble. They're very cautious. They're very conservative. And they have every right to be arrogant. I, I think that the one takeaway from this, and you made a really great point, is that as much as the cost cap is potentially going to benefit from some of the smaller and middle pack teams um, and their ability to be competitive, obviously there's going to be an impact to some of these greater teams. I think the one thing that a lot of people are really losing sight of is it's not just that these bigger teams are going to have less resources to invest in developing parts of the car. It's that we're just going to have more standardized parts on these cars. And if you have more standardized parts, you as a Mercedes, you don't need a team of 25 engineers and fluid aerodynamicists working 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to work on the, the left and right splitters on your front wing, because that's now a standardized component. So mm -hmm. some of this, some of this, uh, cost cap and these standardized parts kind of walk lock in step with each other. But to your point as well, at the end of the day, Mercedes and Ferrari will always be the most attractive destinations for top talent in terms of recruiting engineers out of universities and from other organizations and things like that. They're never going to have an issue. Um, it just means that the depth of their talent won't be as deep. They're not going to have those teams of 25 or 30 engineers working on specific subsets, components of the car. But at the same time, that's not necessarily going to be a requirement because you're going to see more standardized parts. And I think the hope of some of these smaller teams is like, look, having a greater number of standardized parts um, in 
in kind of lockstep with a reduced spending cap is what's going to create more competitiveness and and more parity. So I I still believe that Mercedes is going to crush the field this year. Um, I think what's going to be really interesting is what happens in 2022, right? Because you're already looking at a field that is predominantly powered by a Mercedes power unit. And now you're going to have these other teams that increasingly Mm. are going to have cars that are going to be fitted with components that are going to be very, very, very similar, if not identical, well, I guess in most cases, identical now to the, the, the Mercedes car. So 2022 is going to be awesome. Um, I just, I think this year is going to be more of the same, regardless, regardless of what Toto says. There's just, there's so much work that they've done over the last five or six years into this generation of car that will yeah. spill over into this coming year. And the cost cap could be $50 million, but the investments that they've made in every single year previous to this one will pay off in spades. Yeah, I think so. You know, to be quite honest, I think uh, by and large that the, uh, the the formula that we're running now that came into effect, what was it, 2017? I think by and large that yeah. uh, it's been fairly successful. It, it may not have created the, um, you know, the wheel-to-wheel racing, um, you know, each and every corner at each and every race uh, all season long, but I, I think that the cars have been uh, amazing to look at. I mean, the wider oh, wings and stuff. Yes. Uh, yes you know, it is, it, you know, it, it has been, I think for me, you know, by and large, it, it, it was a step in the right direction. Direction. But I mean, the, this complete new paradigm shift into 2022, I mean, I think we're all sitting here you know, with bated breath, just waiting to get to, uh, I, I would presume, uh, Melbourne, you know, just over a year from now for the, for the start of that season. And, uh, you know, like I say, all these computer models are, are, are one thing. I just can't wait to see these new cars on the track. It's it, why, and you know I've spoken about this so many times, it's why I think for Hamilton, uh, this year is so critical mm-hmm. because this is this is his opportunity to lock up that eighth title and then he can do whatever he wants to do with his career and he'll officially yeah. be the GOAT. I just think if he doesn't win it this year, I think... 2022, 23, 24, it gets increasingly complicated as he ages out and some of these younger drivers continue to develop and the parity amongst the cars gets that much closer. So I think this is going to be, this will be a big year for Hamilton Mercedes for sure. Yeah, that that's a great point. All right, Mark, uh, let's take another break here on the Overtime Media Network and we're going to come back and hopefully we're going to get away from lawsuits and talk about uh, some other things and we'll certainly do that right after this break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, it's only taken us a half an hour to get into what we teased (laughs) right at the start of the show. And that is the uh, departure of a surreal uh, Abitabul, who is gone. He's out of uh, Renault. I mean, he's been there for the past uh, several years from the transition to Lotus and into what, what they are now, which is which is Alpine. And, uh, you know, like, like I was saying right off the top of the show, I can't believe we didn't pick up on it uh, at, at this time last week, that, uh, that, that this just seems like it was uh, <laughs> it was in the cards, you know. Yeah, I completely agree. I felt pretty ashamed because you and I kind of made that connection after the podcast when we were chatting on WhatsApp and we we both, it kind of struck us at the same time. I, I think the question really is, with Cyril Abitable gone, what is his legacy there? And and I think you and I really, and again, I don't know how we didn't think about this last week because we were really talking about Renault's performance um, since 2016, right? Mm-hmm. They they rejoined the sport as a works team. Um, they kind of gobbled up the remnants of the Lotus team. They went their separate ways eventually from, from the Red Bull factory team. But I, I just, I, I can't really wrap my head around 
I, like I'm trying to summarize, if I had to summarize their performance, it would be mediocre. It would be disappointing. It would be unexciting. Like there was very little about this team over the last four or five years that I thought was um, really, I don't know. I, I'm trying, I'm struggling to articulate if you know what I mean. Like I just thought it was very bland and yeah, I don't think that was exactly earned- the word I was yeah, going to throw yeah. out there was bland. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think ultimately, if you ask me, did he earn the right to come back for another season? I, I don't think he did. And, you know, ultimately, he's responsible for the car and the driver relationship. He was the one that recruited uh, Ricardo, which was a boon to the team. But ultimately, as we learned later, that was less about Renault and more about the fact that the divorce and the relationship with Red Bull was so bad. So I can't really credit him with that. And then the fact that Ricardo left so quickly, like, I, I don't think he leaves a really strong legacy. And maybe the the team structurally is is sound and the car is capable, but they weren't re- winning races in his four or five years. They had two podiums in the last year. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what from, from your perspective, like if you had to summarize the serial abitable experience with Renault, what what would you do? What would you say? Well, you, you stole the words right out of my mouth when you uh, when you said the word bland. But in terms of the, their their progress in in terms of um, improvement in competitiveness, where they, they where they are and where they should be as a manufacturer, with you know all the resources they have behind them, that rich history and the fact that uh, you know they've been there and they've done that, and they've got yeah. the T shirt from what they've done in Formula One, not only as a works team but also as an engine supplier. I, I think that the you know the, the progress on a beatable from Lotus into Renault into uh, Alpine, I think it'd be summed up as a stagnant, glacial improve, like, uh, you know, steps forward in improvement. You know, the, you were kind of expected to see a bit of an exponential curve and it's been, I don't want to say a flat line, but uh, yeah. it, it's it's been... You know, not what you really expect. And the fact that uh, they finally got uh, a couple of podiums this year, you know, you know, four or five years into the experiment uh, seems, uh, you know, not a great return on investment into all the, um, you know, the, the money that, uh, you know, the parent company has been uh, throwing into it. So, I mean, uh, you know, he, he himself feels that, um, you know, he, he's, you know, left them with solid foundations. So that's the exact words uh, that, that he used um, for, for the team, both in France and in England. And, well, you know, perhaps opera- operationally that uh, that is true. But just in terms of uh, performance and results on the track, is it's it's left a lot to be uh, desired. I mean, you, you I, I think you made a great point just now that, you know, getting uh, Danny Ricardo, what was a big win for the for the team, but it just seemed to be a convenient landing spot for a guy that was just exactly. desperate to, to get out of uh, Red Bull, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I think the sky's the limit potentially for this team moving forward, simply because they have this opportunity to rebrand and you've got some fresh leadership. I think one thing that's probably not being reported accurately enough is. I'm still suspect, and we'll probably get into this as we start doing our season preview shows and summarizing our expectations for the individual drivers and for the individual teams, but I think it's going to be a very challenging year if they're not successful with Alonzo in that car. I just, my, my fear is his expectations are that he's going to be, and I know he's tried to temper expectations of the media and he's been asked this a couple of times and he's pressed back a little bit, indicating he's not expecting a cha- world championship com- kind of competitive car in year one. But my sense is he is a, a very, very, um, 
I would say, anxious driver that creates a lot of anxiety and fear and friction within the garage and within the team. And I think he's going to need to be managed very closely. And I think that's ultimately what uh, Alpine Renault were thinking when they recruited their most recent CEO is that this is somebody that can manage that type of personality. But I think it's going to be an interesting year. But just to kind of reflect back on that that Renault experience, I think it was disappointing. And to your point, like if I'm Renault Nissan and I'm investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in this project. And again, it's a vanity project, right? Because it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to ever extrapolate whether we sell more road cars because we have an F1 team. But if you're investing that money and the team's uncompetitive and you have a French Grand Prix, because remember a big part of this and a big part of the investment in getting that Renault team off the ground was kind of the promise that we were going to go back to the French hinterland and have a, a national Grand Prix. The fact that you had a Grand Prix plus Monaco and the team's been uncompetitive has been a little bit disappointing. So in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that he had this much of a leash, to be totally honest. And mm-hmm. I don't believe for a second that he's incompetent um, by any means. I think he's he's a good guy and he deserved the shot going back to 2016. I just think at some point you have to sever ties and reboot operation and bring in some fresh leadership. And that's obviously what they've what they've done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, over the, the the past several years, he's probably taken them to the you know the, the place that he was capable of doing. Yeah. But to, to to take it to that next step, and I mean, you can take any any sport that you want to, you know, uh, it's not just limited to, to, to Formula One. Be it a coach or a general manager or whatever it is, that uh, that sometimes you just need uh, you know th- that guy that's going to come in and 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 take a team uh, you know that that much further, you know basketball i mean a name that immediately uh, jumps to mind is phil jackson right I, I mean look at teams in the nba how many titles has have they won being coached by phil jackson right and and how have those teams done before and after he's left that organization right i mean you know so so i don't know if phil jackson would be a good fit in formula one it would certainly be interesting You'd have to go and pull him out of his ranch in Montana. And I think that would be a a little bit difficult to do, but be careful because if you open up the NBA Pandora's box, I'll talk Phil Jackson for the next three hours. I don't know. I don't know if that's what the listeners necessarily want at this point. A warning that will take it because we've, uh, like we said right from the beginning, we've uh, bitten off a a very, very ambitious amount of, uh, you know, topics that we wanted to cover uh, today. Anyways, uh, sticking with uh, with Reno, and we will pick up this Phil uh, Jackson discussion at some point, uh, but probably just not on the show. Anyways, uh, Danny Ricardo, uh, he said uh, this week that he feels that uh, Renault has actually grown a little bit out of what he called a timid Formula One team, which uh, he said was very much the environment, uh, you know, there within the organization when he showed up there uh, a, a couple of years ago. And then, uh, so so that was kind of interesting. I mean, uh, R- Ricardo, I mean, he's obviously a flamboyant uh, personality, but he's not really one of these people. He, he's not an Alonso, right? I mean, Alonso can be very blunt and pointed in the things that uh, he's saying. And I, I don't find that a, a derogatory uh, statement uh, from Ricardo. I, I feel that that this year, based on their performance, that the fact that they, they managed to get on the podium a couple of times, I don't want to say that this is a team that has... You could go as far to say that they have like a lot of swagger now, but I think that uh, we saw some improvements uh, this year because going into the season, I mean, the beatable really tried to temper expectations, and I think that this year there there were some glimpses that things might uh, you know starting to 
percolate up to the surface. I think those two uh, podiums that Ricardo got was, uh, you know, I, I think an indication of something that uh, that the team, like I say, might not have a lot of swagger. But I think they got a bit of confidence now, and I think that uh, you know that might be a good place for the new the new regime to start from. That was, uh, and that was exactly Daniel Ricardo's comment, right? Is he's being he's being very polite and he's being very diplomatic, and of course, it's not as though his departure from Renault was something that was initiated by the team itself. This was him yeah. pursuing what he perceives to be a better opportunity, but he's obviously being very gracious and diplomatic, but that was one of the things that he had addressed was that in his two years, especially as he got towards the back half of his second year, that the confidence amongst the personnel was, was growing by leaps and bounds. I think the one thing we really need to be cautious about, and, and you know, I, I apply this to McLaren and I apply this to racing point. Um, now Aston Martin is, a lot of the results that they garnered this year were really a consequence of Ferrari's incompetence and the fact that they were, for all intents and purposes, caught cheating and were penalized in a way that really impacted their results. So I, again, and again, I don't want to take any, I guess I am taking something away by making that by making that connection. But ultimately, I, I think it was very much a down year for Ferrari and a lot of these teams were able to scoop up podiums that yeah. maybe wouldn't necessarily have been available to them. But again, hopefully going forward, there'll be podiums available to everybody because we see more parody in the sport but but yeah it'll be interesting and the other thing that's really curious to it and i know we're going to talk about this is as you rebrand from renault to alpine um i i think the changes are going to be much deeper than we're seeing um so obviously we know what's happening at the team principal level and the ceo level and the driver level we don't typically report on changes much deeper than that like we don't necessarily know what's going on with the engineers at the factory we don't know what's going on with the mechanics in the garage and the pit crew and things like that but my suspicion and based on some things that i've read is that the changes that this team are seeing are much deeper than you might expect in terms of personnel so there's every reason to think that this isn't just kind of a rebranded team with new leadership. This will be very much fundamentally a new organization that just happens to function out of the same factory and use the same power unit that the old car did. So yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's going to be one of those uh, storylines. I mean, there, there's so many different, uh, you know, fascinating stories going into 2021 and things that we're going to be watching all season long. And uh, Renault slash Alpine is definitely going to be one. And just before we head into our final break here, Mark, uh, it, it you know, I, I don't know if everybody's seen it. I definitely go to motorsport.com, any of these fine F1 blogs that are out there and look at the, the, the livery that Alpine's teasing for the 2021 car, black, predominantly black with the, uh, the, the colors of the French uh, flag, uh, the the red, white, and blue, and it uh, looks like a, a you know a stylized day on the the, the, the back of the, uh, the the cowling over the engine. It looks good. I mean, uh, Mercedes approved last year with the uh, you know the shift uh, to the all all black. Uh, you know, it, it looks good. It, it I, I think black always looks good on cars, and you know the the addition of the the, the colors of the French flag. Uh, you know, if this is what they're going with. I like it. I like you it know, a lot. Black looks good on a car that you don't own and you don't have to maintain and you don't have to polish and wax and clean. But I, I, I was <laughs> unimpressed to be honest. Like I woke up this morning, opened my social, cause I think that's what people do, right? You open your eyes and you open Instagram, see what's happening. Pretty much. That's what yeah. I did. It was one of the first things that popped up in my feed. I was just like, eh, it's okay. But I was talking to my buddy, Randy, and I'm just going to quote out of WhatsApp here. Um, I was unexpectedly unexpectedly he really liked it and his quote is it has a clean no bs almost sinister vibe satin yes. black is done to death but throwing the tricolor on there is like an athlete draping themselves in their country flag on the podium i'm like 
Yeah, that's actually a really great way it. to summarize. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and, and I, I think what's really important for people to understand is that Alpine is deeply embedded in French motorsport culture. And that's what that tricolor represents is the French national flag. And if I'm a French motorsport fan, I can get behind this more than I can that weird kind of metallic, yellowy colored Renault thing that we saw the last four or five years. Yeah. Like. If I'm a French motorsport fan, this is awesome, and I'm going to buy all the merch associated with this car. Yeah, well, maybe that's a, a lot to do with it. Uh, it might not look, uh, you know, some people might be kind of uh, love it or hate it. I mean, me and your friend Randy, I, I think we're obviously guys that like it. You're, you know, a little bit lukewarm on it. But I mean, the thing that it does, it, it might really play into, uh, you know, it, it might look really good in a, a lot of the merch and hats and T-shirts and jackets and things like that. So anyways, it, it looks good. I like it. And uh, we'll see. I, I mean, I, I'm looking. This this is the exciting part of the year because, you know, you're, you're just weeks away from the from the car launches as you get into yeah. February and March and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, the, you know, th this is one team we're going to be looking at. And another one that we're going to be looking forward to is Aston Martin. And we're actually going to talk about Aston Martin. We're going to do so just on the other side of the break here so don't go away we'll be back in just a very short moment All right. Well, welcome back to the show. For all of you watching on YouTube, the podcast listeners, we're we're still here. We're still running down the latest news, and we're going to talk a little bit now about uh, Aston Martin. And uh, well, this this is you know I think something we touched on uh, again a couple of weeks ago. But uh, Team Principal Otmar Safnauer says that uh, he believes that four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel is going to bring out the best in his young teammate and our fellow Canadian Lance Stroll. And certainly, like we said, uh, was was it last week or the week before, Mark? That with everything that uh, that Lance has around him now at Aston Martin, if he doesn't put it all together in the next year or so, it, you know, you got to think that he's never going to be able to, to to figure it out in Formula One. I'm feeling really good about the last five or six shows because we seem to pick up on these stories and these trends long before the media does. So when the stories come to us, we're always able to reflect on the fact that, yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but we absolutely talked about this. And we talked about it in the vein that bringing Vettel into the team is it's a marketing exercise because you can sell the team based on the fact that you have a world champion in your cockpit. Uh, but also because, and there's no question here that, that Lawrence justifiably wants to do everything he can to develop Lance as a driver. And what better way to do that than partnering him with a formula one world champion that's been to the top of the mountain four times. And I think Vettel's personality is such that he's probably somebody that is going to be a very good teammate and mm -hmm. share data and share intel and share best practices. And I'm sure in the process of contract negotiations, it was probably made pretty clear to him that, hey, look, as much as we're bringing you in to be a competitive driver, to give you the opportunity to win races, we also need you to help develop this young driver that's going to be in the cockpit next to you. Because people always forget that Lance is 21. He is, he's a baby. He's, he seems like he's been in the sport forever, but he's still so, so, so young. And, and I think partnering him with, with Vettel is going to be uh very, very significant for his career. Because again, it was great that he was with Perez, but Perez didn't win his first race as a driver until last season. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The, the partnerships in, in Williams were problematic for all the reasons that we've ever spoken about, but now he gets to go into that garage every race weekend with a world champion. He gets to sit in debriefs with a world champion and watch video with a world champion. I think this is going to be 
uh, fantastic for Lance's development. And I think that's really what Otmar was speaking to in the piece that you described. But I think absolutely this is going to be very significant for, for Stroll's development. Yeah, well, well, Otmar was saying that he, he believes that the, uh, the, the two of them, they're going to play off each other and motivate each other. That's, uh, the, you know, that's what Safnauer is saying. And certainly, and, and the thing that's interesting about uh, Stroll is uh, I find compared to other drivers of his age group, you know, thinking about the Maxes, the Charles, the, the Landos, and uh, your George Russells, that um, I find that Lance is, uh, he, he's much more in talent-wise, his talent is more raw. And, and I find that, um, you know, I keep thinking, you know, you know, being in the organization that he is now, you know, having everything that he has around him now, you know, can they take that piece of coal and polish it up and find that diamond underneath? Uh, because, you know, d- despite that, um, you know, all the success that Lance has had in the lower formulas, you know, we, we still, we, we've seen glimpses of it. I, I, I don't want to, you know, put him down because I'm not trying to do that as, uh, a, a, at all. I, I, you know, and, you know, unfortunately he just gets a lot of criticism, I think, you know, unfairly he gets uh, you know you know painted with that brush he's only there because he's got a rich dad which i mean obviously that's that's true to an extent but you know there, there's more to it than that so i i genuinely believe that lance has talent and it's just uh, you know watching over the next year or so to see how that talent you know is is it going to really come out and present itself or you know is, is he going to stay more or less where he is right now so uh, very very interesting and again uh, you know what we, we were talking about uh, before the break that uh, you know there, there's so many great storylines to watch in 2021 and this whole Aston Martin thing absolutely fascinates me I would say it's to the point of obsession but it's certainly getting there I mean there's just so many things to watch I mean you know there's so many things to watch in Formula One but this team in particular there's a lot going on because I mean there there was certainly a lot of uh, you know indications this year that, that, that there's something happening with this team and now with the additional investment you know you got uh, you got Vettel there you're going into the new factory all the money all the stroll bucks that are coming in into this team it just um you know it, it just like i said you know i've said a couple of times over the past month or so this doesn't feel like a vanity pro uh, you know project it, it feels like a bunch of people that are serious about coming into formula one and they're serious about competing and and obviously being serious about competing means winning races and winning championships so you know to, to put it in a nutshell that's why i'm excited about watching this team Absolutely. And we have absolutely, I, I think, uh, sprayed champagne all over Lawrence Stroll for the past, <laughs> for the last two or three months, really because, you know, we, we talk about the fact that Force India went into administration, which was triggered by Sergio Perez, and it was the right thing to do. But there were a couple of groups that were looking to bid on that team. And, and oftentimes when a company goes into administration in the UK, other companies bid on them because they want to strip them for parts. Yeah, and yeah. and Lawrence has done absolutely the opposite in the sense he has invested hundreds of millions of dollars to turn what was really a capable but kind of, and I'd say financial weakling of an F1 team into potentially a powerhouse. He, he invested in the team and then he went out and spent hundreds of millions of dollars investing in Aston Martin so that he could marry the two and create a works team. Like what he's done is, is absolutely exceptional and he deserves all the praise in the world. He's done it the right way. He's invested the money. He's built the facilities. He's brought in the right personnel. Um, I have nothing but praise for this guy. And I think it just, the, the win this season just really reinforced 
reinforce that the things that he's doing are the right things. And and again, you said it, I'll say it. I can't wait to see what this team has for uh, 2021. Yeah, it, it's certainly going to be one of those, uh, you know, fascinating uh, stories to, to, to watch, you know, going into this, uh, going into the season. So, uh, you know, this is another story uh, that we've, we've talked about, uh, you know, basically since uh, Bahrain two secure Grand Prix, but uh, George Russell's now kind of a, uh, downplaying the, the the possibilities of getting a seat at Mercedes uh, for for 2022 uh he hasn't completely ruled it out uh, you know saying that uh, you know that that situations and things can change quite quickly in, in formula 1 but you know just just seeing what he did and just knowing at the age that he's at knowing where lewis is in his, in his career I just feel that uh, you know, and and the fact that he already is a Mercedes uh, driver, even though he's uh, you know racing uh, for Williams. I, I mean, to me, he just he just checks off too many boxes in the pros co- you know uh, column to to bring this guy into Mercedes. Uh, you know, as a, as a potential, you know, um, you know, I I don't want to say replacement uh, for 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 Lewis, but certainly you know, if if you've got uh, you know, you're looking at a post Lewis Hamilton. Uh, Mercedes uh, team, you have to think that, uh, you know, you want to bring in the next guy that might be there after Lewis leaves. I mean, he might not want to leave for another five or six years. Who knows, right? But you have to think at some point it's going to really pay off to to bring in a young driver, specifically specifically a hot prospect like George Russell, and give him that opportunity of having a couple of years at least with a guy like Lewis Hamilton to, to, to learn what it's all about and to absorb Everything of being around a guy like Lewis Hamilton is is going to to benefit and 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 teach a guy like George Russell. I feel like I start every paragraph with the following. We've talked about this so much in the past, <laughs> but I I think that I think the risk here to George Russell is that we know he's under contract with Williams this year. We don't necessarily know what the contract status is going to look like for the two Mercedes drivers for 2022. My concern for him is that the drum will start beating early in the season from the media about where he's going to be in 2022. And my Mm -hmm. fear for him is that this could be personally a distraction um, in the sense that he's going to start wondering. I think it's going to be a distraction for the team because I think the team's going to be asked about it a lot. I think it's going to be a distraction from the Mercedes team because we, we all know that that should be the end destination. But if it's going to be the case for 2022, I just, I hope it's addressed in season um, publicly and internally because my fear is that it's going to be a distraction and the other piece too is that if I'm George Russell and it's not addressed in season and it, and we wait till after the season where am I from a confidence perspective you know what mm-hmm. three years with Williams is a really tough grind with a team that simply doesn't have the capability to feel the competitive team um, I think for for his well-being if if you're long-term objective is to get him into that car, you need to let him know sooner than later. And that needs to be a mid-season decision. And and I think to your point, part of this needs to be that we know that Lewis isn't going to race forever. He's in his mid-30s, especially if he wins the championship this year. There's absolutely no necessary motivation for him to come back as a 36, 37, 30-year-old driver. Like the urgency for me, if I'm Toto and Domler, is I need to get this kid into the car because for the same reasons that Lance needs to be next to Vettel, you want this guy soaking up as much as possible from from Lewis before he ultimately exits the sport. And you don't want to rob him of that opportunity. The other thing that's really advantageous to Mercedes here is that one, George Russell's a young kid and he's British. And, you know, we talk about Mercedes being 
a, a German company. It's a British racing team. The power units developed in the UK. The team is based out of Brackley. For all intents and purposes, this is a British team. And the marketing potential of having him in this team for the next five or 10 years, especially since he's so charismatic and he's so photogenic, like you want to be able to, you want to be able to leverage those marketable assets and, Mm -hmm. um, capabilities of this driver. I just, I just hope that this isn't something that becomes a distraction as the season winds on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That that's my, that's ultimately my fear is that come Canada, all we're talking about is where's Russell going to be next year? Where's Russell going to be next year? And if Bottas is struggling or isn't competitive with Hamilton, that drumbeat only gets faster and faster and faster. Yeah. You know, it it is interesting too, because uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, the, the incident that he had behind the safety car in, uh, at, at Imola where he put it into the safety wall or into the uh, into the crash barriers when uh, he was trying to keep his tires warm you know that 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 to me was it was an unfortunate thing you know it was a young driver that wasn't used to something like that it was just it was one of those things you know and then I thought well you know I I felt really bad for him because there's that picture on Instagram you know sort of sitting there you know his head in his hands and then you got the double whammy because you got Roman, Roman Grosjean saying, don't worry, he made it happens to the best of us. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, no, I don't know if I want to be consoled about crashing into the wall behind a safety car, but you know, by, by the likes of Roman Grosjean, but that's a, that, that's a different story. But you know, that, that was one of those things I, I I'd thought about it after the season and though, especially after Sakir that, uh, that this, this would be a guy that would just, I think would just soak up like that that being in that environment being in that team uh you know and and being teammate to a guy like lewis hamilton i i just think that there are just so many upsides bringing him in to that uh, team because if you don't if you wait another year or beyond then at some point he's just he you know he he just knows that that uh you know despite being in, in the mercedes system it just uh, you know, ultimately does not funnel up to the big team. And then he's at uh, one day, you know, he's going to say, you know what, guys, you know, just, uh, you know, get me out of here. I want to go to Renault or Alpine. I want to go to Red Bull or, you know, wh- whatever it might be. And, you know, the, these links uh, to Mercedes, you know, very much like Esteban Alco had uh, right a couple of years ago, you know, he could very much uh, kind of find himself a little bit hindered that, uh, you know, what seems a great situation to be, uh, you know, in that uh, Mercedes system ultimately becomes a, a, a bit of a shackle that, uh, you know, <laughs> limits you and your opportunities elsewhere. So why why do you think Mercedes is so invested in retaining Bottas uh, in that seat? Is it is it simply because it's a formula that that's working and it's propelling Hamilton to championships and is propelling them to constructors championships and there's no reason to disrupt that formula? Why why do you think there's hesitation from Mercedes to make that to make what seems like such a logical move to all of us? Well, it, it is interesting, right? And um, yeah, I guess uh, familiarity, uh, breed, you know, you know, breeds comfort, and uh, certainly, like you say, that uh, that that system, that formula works. Uh, that they know what they're going to get out of uh, Valtteri Bottas. They know that he's going to deliver points. He's going to get a, win a you know a handful of races each and every year, which kind of keeps him happy. And um, you know, I, I guess that there is that uh, perpetual discussion that uh, you know he's a, a challenger. You know, I, I'm using the uh, you know inverted commas uh, commas here that he's a challenger in the, the the title race with Lewis in although in reality I think that's obviously uh, disputed but uh, certainly I, I think that um Sakir was interesting because I think it, um, it, it plants a seed about uh, in, in some people's mind about like, uh, you know, how good is Lewis 
is it you know how good is he or is it all just the car and i mean i, I think obviously lewis hamilton is an exceptionally good uh, formula one driver but i i think what george russell did in that one weekend and of course it's a very small sample you know just uh, getting in there for a, for a couple of practice sessions of qualifying and, and a race you know to to really start to drawing comparisons with the, with lewis hamilton but i think it it's really posed some interesting questions. I think the the, the first one is, uh, you know, is, is could he do what Valtteri Bottas is doing, but do it better? And I, I think my answer to that is, I think he could. And I think the, the only question or doubt I have about him at this time is not his... Um, his uh, his capabilities as his uh, as a race driver i think it comes down to a little bit more uh, a question about uh, experience you know his race craft and also consistency i i think those are the are, are the questions i think those are you know maybe a couple of the the, the marks against uh, george russell right now but that that's an age thing that's an experience thing and you know you're, you're never going to i i, I think it's it purely comes down to experience in, in Formula One because let's let's face it. I think he knows he's a good driver. I think we have all recognized that uh, that potentially there could be something special there, and a guy like that, I think ultimately he's he's not going to be you know satisfied in Williams unless miraculously they really figure it out and uh, develop a, a competitive car, which seems like a bit of a stretch. You know, I I, I kind of draw a parallel to uh, my my early snowboarding days and. And my sense is that he has nothing more to learn as a driver in that car because of the limitations of that vehicle. And I reflect back on when I first got into snowboarding, um, I was really hesitant to move on to a yellow run. So when you're on a mountain, you've got your green runs and you've got your yellow runs and you've got your red runs. I spent weeks and weeks and weeks on a green run because I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I finally came to this realization that I can spend all the time in the world on a green run, but my skill set is never going to improve. And I learned more one day on a yellow run than I did in the prior two weeks playing on the green runs. And I just think in his case, his his growth is capped at that team. Um, and I think he personally will probably recognize that and he probably does already. But I just think if his future is not defined by the end of the season, um, I think there's going to be some frustration there and there's going to be some friction in that relationship. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully there's something that works for all parties, minus Bottas, because I think ultimately he's going to be the one that doesn't, uh, doesn't kind of have a, a season at the end of this, but I, I'm eager to see. I'm eager to see him in that car. But just know that if he's in that car, um, he's not going to be in that car to be a, a, a one B driver, right? Like he's going to be there with the expectation that he's going to have the opportunity to win races and compete for world championships. And again, I think that's probably strategically one of the reasons why Mercedes has kind of put a pause on this. Like, hey, you know what? The formula that we have now is working. Hamilton's happy. He's winning titles. With Bottas, we're winning constructors. There's nothing left for us to achieve. And I just think that after this season, um, there may be less hesitation to meddle with that formula, especially if Hamilton's got that eighth title. But uh, but we'll we'll have to see. Yeah, you know, it, it could really sort of, you know, let, let's just say that if he came in and he really flipped the team on its head and, you know, turned out to be as quick or quicker than Lewis Hamilton... 
certainly oh. that that could that could tarnish his legacy a, a, a little bit. So perhaps you know there there is something to that. I mean, of course, this is pure speculation. And, and, it's what and we guessing. do best. Oh yeah, of course it's it's what we do best, and we're we're basing this off one weekend in the desert in the Middle East, and uh, it, it certainly, if anything else, it has provoked uh, you know uh, what I think to be a, a fascinating line of thought. And uh, again, only time will tell and uh, see where it goes. But ultimately, I think that they they have to make a decision on what they want to do with George Russell. You know, do they want to keep him within the Mercedes family or are they going to, you know, sever those ties and let him, you know, find his own way in Formula One and let his career lead where it's ultimately going to lead? All right, Mark. So one more uh, story that I want to cover before we wrap it up. And this is one that uh, you sent me uh, earlier this year. So we kind of started the show on uncertainty and things that might be up in the air. And we're, we're going to go right back to that. And that is the, the potential that perhaps uh, Alfa Romeo may not be sticking around in Formula One much longer. Yeah. And I think it's very, I think you need to be careful with the story because as is a lot of web generated content, it's a little bit misleading and you read into the story and the report is that Alfa Romeo's time in Formula One could be short lived. And I think you need to be careful and kind of peel that title away a little bit because ultimately Alfa Romeo isn't really a traditional works team, nor is the Alfa Romeo team actually owned by Fiat. This is really just a really deep, elaborate sponsorship agreement with Sauber. So yeah. there's there's some ha- things happening at the corporate level right now. Um, we're in the process of witnessing a Fiat uh, Peugeot uh, merger, which will potentially create uh, a mega company called, and I think it's pronounced Stellantis or Stellantis. Uh, but ultimately, one of the consequences of this is that Fiat, who is the owner of the Alfa Romeo brand, uh, may abandon this project because this is very much just an elaborate sponsorship. Now, it doesn't mean that the team is going to potentially leave the grid. It's just that the Alfa Romeo branding associated with this team may evaporate. And Sauber and Sauber's had an interesting history, right? Like if you move back a couple of decades ago, Sauber has historically been, regardless of who the ownership is, an independent Swiss-based Formula One team. Um, At some point in the early 2000s, the team was actually bought by BMW and rebranded BMW Sauber. Uh, They had a fairly short-lived, unsuccessful run, and the team was actually bought back by the original owner. So they bought back the equity that BMW had invested in the team, and they became Sauber. Uh, They had a pretty mediocre run for the next decade, um, and then ultimately the tie-up with Ferrari happened, and then the sponsorship deal with Alfa Romeo happen. So if you see this, if you hear from this, it's really just a potential consequence of the merger between Peugeot and Fiat in that some of these vanity projects uh, may have to disappear as a consequence of the current state of the global economy. But that doesn't mean that Sauber itself will disappear. But it could mean that Sauber, who is deeply, deeply reliant on these sponsorship deals may eventually come on the market for sale. And I think that is the potential outcome of this is Sauber owns the team, but they are completely dependent on the dollars associated with this deeply embedded sponsorship. And if the sponsorship goes away and it's not 
easily replaced. The team itself may be for sale. And we don't see Formula One teams up for sale very often. And given that there's only 10 of them, there could be some real interest. The hope, of course, is that the Mazapan family stays as far away <laughs> from this team as possible. We don't yeah. need any part of them owning a Swiss-based Formula One team. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, it, it certainly is, um, you know, one that's, uh, you know, food for thought. And uh, you, I, I think you summed it up uh, perfectly that, uh, you know, the, the speculation is a little bit uh, misleading that uh, if they're going to pull out the sport. And and, and again, I, I think you summed it up perfectly in the fact that it is, you know, they're, they're not the team. It is, like you say, a very elaborate, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship uh, deal. Because, I mean, what was it a couple of years ago? It, it was Sauber, then Alfa Romeo Sauber, and then it's been Alfa for a male the last uh, couple of years you got it yeah i mean i mean it looks great to see it on the car i mean it looks really good uh, when when it's out on the track there but it is just uh you know for for more or less uh you know it it is just a a fancy you know paint scheme uh and and decals on the side of the car but still it would be a a little bit of a loss and uh, certainly there would be a a bit of a you know concerning vacuum for for sauber themselves you know should they uh, decide to 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 pull out so who who knows and it kind of makes you wonder if uh, perhaps some of these other names that uh, that we hear associated with uh, formula one would another manufacturer be uh, interested uh, you know to 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 pick that up and and do something with it i mean uh, you know you you just made that uh, you know that great reference to BMW Sauber in the early 2000s. I mean, could we see possibly like a Volkswagen or an Audi or a Porsche or you could, could you, or, you know, I guess technically some of them fall under the same corporate umbrella, but could you see, you know, when, you know, another big mega auto company jumping in and, and buying this team and rebranding it as one of those, you know, really well-known, <laughs> you know, brands, right? So certainly, uh, Another one that uh, we're, we're just gonna have to have to watch because uh, the the way that things change in this uh, in, in the world nowadays certainly uh, you know <laughs> something that you didn't really see on the radar a week ago all of a sudden becomes a thing and it's a it's a real big issue this week so th- this one you know th- there could be something to it so we'll just have to follow up in the weeks and months ahead. And with that, Mark, I think that we've come to the end of our equivalent of a very ambitious 23 race season in podcast form. I don't know if we covered uh, 23 stories. It certainly feels like it. But, uh, you know, that, that that's all I got this week. And uh, I, I think the way that uh, you're starting to organize things on your side, uh, put your notes back, that uh, you've pretty much run out of things to say as well. There, Just there like a, a news anchor at the desk, <laughs> yeah, I'll, right. I'll put away. I'll put away for the sake of our listeners. I'll put away my three pages of MotoGP corner notes. I'll save that for next week. There you go. Well, I, I guess we're going to need like a, a good uh, sign off now. Like, stay classy, San Diego. You know, yeah, we, yeah, maybe we yeah, need Ron Burgundy on the show, but uh, or, or maybe not. <laughs> but anyways, that's it uh, from us uh, this week, uh, guys. Thank you very much for downloading, listening, and watching the show on YouTube. If you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, uh, do so on uh, on Twitter at ScooterF1Pod and also on email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's a rip, a, a rap, not a rip. It's been a real rip doing the show. Anyways, it's a, it's a wrap. Thanks uh, for hanging out with us. And we'll talk to you guys again this time next week. Bye for now.